word. And there, there's a lot of people following us on you know, Facebook, on the internet, podcast, different ways. So let's go ahead and open up with prayer. Please agree with me. I mean, it was the prayer of the righteous. I love the Amplified, but the prayer of the righteous make tremendous power available, dynamic, and it's working. Isn't that an awesome translation right there? But the Bible also says if two agree on earth is touching anything, the Lord will do it. So if you agree with me. So, Father, we come into agreement tonight in Jesus' name and through his blood. We come in agreement over this word, over this series that we're doing. And, Lord, we ask you that the precious Holy Spirit upon these sermons tonight and in the future just to move mightily upon your people that are going to be hearing this they may hear it through podcast or they may watch a video through vimeo they may see it live on facebook however they're going to be seeing this lord we ask you that the holy spirit move upon all of us and lord help us just to get captivated to give you our best ear our full attention our focus that our minds are in tune with what you're revealing to us our hearts are are tender to the word of god and and Lord, that we will be good, fertile soil, and that you would speak through me, Lord, the living seeds of truth that will go out, sown into that good soil among the nations, and it will be watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains until Jesus comes. Lord, we're believing you. We're in agreement for fruit that remains. And Lord, we ask you that the Word of God will go out. Lord, as a bright, shining light of truth and dispel all the darkness and lies and deception of the evil one. And Lord, we'll bring truth. Let your word go out, Lord. It'll be the washing of the water of the word, preparing us for the coming of the Lord. Let your word be like a sword that's going to penetrate and get where it needs to. Lord, let it be like a hammer that breaks through strongholds. And let the wind of your Holy Spirit carry this seed of the truth out among the nations that it will... Get where it's supposed to accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish, Lord. And that everything will take place at your will to be done in and through the preaching of this word. Speak to me everything that needs to be spoken. Help us, Lord, to have mental clarity and focus. We're not distracted. And, Lord, we thank you for that. And we also agree together. Jesus said the birds try to steal the seed. That's the demonic. So, Lord, we agree as a church. Anything that would try to hinder this word in any way, try to steal the seed, we bind you in the name of Jesus. You will back off right now. We break your power. We command you to get your hands off and out away from this word tonight in every life. And Lord, we thank you for your mighty angels clearing it out. And we stand on the promise that this word will get where it's supposed to get and accomplish what it's supposed to do. There's not going to be anything trying to confine it or contain it or try to hinder it or try to steal the seed. It's not going to happen. You know, this goes out in a lot of places, a lot of places where maybe there's satanic strongholds, you know. But the enemy is bound in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you for it. We believe it tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, I'm on part eight, but I'm dealing with the fourth part of Revelation chapter four. And this is such a complex issue that, you know, I'm having to take time with it. How many knows there's some things you just can't rush? This is one of those subjects. And let me tell you, there's so much confusion about this subject. I'll give you one example. Do you remember how I talked about how um, that statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in a dream, which I believe is probably why he built a big statue in Daniel 3 and made everybody worship it. He got that idea from 
the dream God gave him, you know. But anyway, that's not the point I was making. But the statue, so you went from the golden head down to the arms of silver, to the bronze, down to the Roman, the legs of iron. But do you remember how there was a stone that was not cut out by man? It was something from God. And it, was, it came in like a meteor, and it struck that statue in the ten toes, which are the end time Roman, revived Rome, if you will, that the Antichrist will rule over. It struck there. But see, there's people that don't understand end time prophecy. And the reason why I'm spending time with this is because it's, it's extremely important. And see, we know that that stone is coming at the end of the tribulation time. And that's the second coming of Jesus where his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives. He's going to go into Jerusalem and reign for a thousand years. And his kingdom, that stone that struck that statue, the statue crumbled. And then his kingdom, began, that stone began to grow and fill the earth. Remember that? And so that's the second coming of the Lord. But how many knows between now and that time, it's going to be perilous times. So let me just give you an example of why this is so important. There are some people that honestly believe what I'm about to tell you. They believe that the world is getting better, not worse. Now just hear me out. And they believe that it's like the stone that came has already come and it's like the church and they believe that as we continue to move in our kingdom authority that then everything is going to keep getting better and better and better until the lord just kind of comes in on that and just rules over it that's what they believe that's nothing like what the bible says it's a total misinterpretation of the scripture there's also people that believe that we've got hundreds of years in front of us before the Lord comes. That's not going to happen. His coming is very soon. So there's a lot of misinterpretation. There's a lot of confusion about this. And that's why I'm spending some time with it. And just remember one thing, and then I'll, I'll dive into this sermon. I, I've talked about how important it is that people understand the difference between the prophecies regarding Israel and the prophecies regarding the church. They're two completely different things. And that's where people get confused, right there. I believe that's one of the reasons why that gross misinterpretation of the stone is because they're seeing it somehow as to do with the church and it filling the earth rather than seeing it being the second coming of the Lord to Israel. Do you see? That's just one of many examples I could give. There's a lot of confusion. So I wanted to take some time with this, and tonight I'm dealing again with the rapture, which is the Greek word harpazo, which means a snatching away, a catching away. And I'm dealing with that. Uh, this will be the fourth sermon because it's such a complex issue and such a controversial issue. Last week I dealt with more, dealt with more of a Greek perspective. Tonight I'm going to deal more with a Hebraic perspective. And so it's going to be a little bit different. But it will answer some questions. So, number one, the first thing I want to say is this. In Jeremiah 30, verse 7, in regards to this, the days that are coming, 
The Bible, we call it the tribulation time. It's a seven-year period. Did you know that that is the most talked about period of a specific mention period of time in all of scripture you have those those seven years you have it broken to uh, three and a half years and another three and a half years it's mentioned multiple times and the thing is what's so important about that tribulation time to understand it properly is jeremiah 30 verse 7 it's called the days of jacob's trouble and as i mentioned before who when Jacob's name was changed what was his name changed to Israel so we're dealing with the days of Israel's trouble not the days of the church's trouble once you understand that everything seems to fall into place and as I've talked about before so now we're going to dive into the Hebraic perspective so I'm going to give the very condensed version of this because I've talked about it so much. But the ancient Jewish wedding, there is an idiom. How many knows what an idiom is? Like, for example, we would say something like, it's raining cats and dogs, which is kind of an old idiom. But how many knows that somebody from another country, you say something like that, they're going to have no idea. And say, so what do you guys do around here? To animal abuse? I mean, what's going on here in America? But it's these idioms, these things that we say, well, in this particular time, in this particular country, there was these idioms. And if you were to say, no man knows the day nor the hour, there's two things that will come to somebody's mind in this Jewish culture of Jesus' day. The first was the Jewish wedding, and the second was the Feast of Trumpets, and I'm about to explain that to you. So when Jesus said over and over and over, to be ready to watch him pray, but he kept saying this, he said, no man knows the day nor the hour. He kept saying that, but the people in their mind, there was an idiom that would go back to certain things in their mind that doesn't to you because you're not in that culture. So let me give you an example. In the ancient Jewish wedding of Jesus' day, and we give you the condensed version, a young man would, would go out, the women would be, the young virgin women would be drawing water at the well for a chore. He'd find a young lady, he was interested in he would go to her father and say i'm interested in marrying her well they would talk about the dowry the price and just like that young man jesus paid a price for his bride at the cross okay but he had to pay a dowry and then there would be what's called a ketubah that's written up it would be like a, what we call marriage license it was a legal binding agreement that would be signed later but regardless, he would make uh, payment. He would have to have a dowry. But that young lady would come in, and the father, her father would say, look, I've agreed to this, but you still have a choice in the matter. So they would set a cup of the fruit of the vine on the table, and she could drink of that. If she agreed to marry him, she would drink of it and set it down. I believe that's a picture and type of the communion table. It's a betrothal cup. Then that young man, once she agreed to it, he would go to his father's house and he would go for up to two years. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And he referenced, he said, in my father's house are many mansions. So he was referencing going to his father's house. See, this culture, all of this would have made more sense to them at that time than it does to you and I. 
But anyway, as I explain it, I'm hoping that it does make sense. I really studied this out. So he would go to his father's house and begin to build a wedding chamber, a bridal chamber. Because once he married this young lady, he was exempt from work and from any military service or anything for a year that he would spend with, with her. So he was going to prepare a place. Now the young lady would continue to do her chores and, and continue on with her life, but she would wear a veil. And so everybody that saw her would see the veil and know that she was betrothed and she was off limits. So she had to keep herself pure. How many knows that the Lord has gone to prepare a place for us, but he expects us that we're going to be a bride without spot or blemish. That we're looking for his coming. We're keeping ourselves pure, unstained from the world. We're not going to be contaminated with the flesh. We're going to be ready for the coming of the Lord. He's going to come like a thief in the night, and we do not know the day nor the hour. So she was continuing on, but every night she knew because according to the custom, he would come as a thief in the night. And so when Jesus kept saying, I'm coming like a thief in the night, people were thinking wedding. You see what I'm saying? And so as he went, she, she was back home. Every night she would keep her lamp lit and she would have to keep extra oil by her bed because she knew that he could come at the second or third watch of the night getting very, very late and that the lamp would burn and burn up the oil and she needed extra oil to keep her lamp lit because his, his coming could be late into the night. And see, the lamp speaks of your prayer life. The extra oil speaks of the Holy Spirit. For us to, Jesus kept saying, watch and pray, watch and pray. For us to have strong prayer lives, we need the oil of the Holy Spirit. How many knows what I'm talking about? It is hard when you are spiritually dry to really keep your prayer life strong. That's why you need to go to a church where God moves. Because you need that corporate anointing. Every, every time we come together and we pray for you, even just being in here and worshiping in the atmosphere that we're in, there's a refreshing in that. And you know what, you're, you know what I'm talking about because I feel it too. You're just refreshed in the Lord's presence. And then, then we go through and pray for people and you're filled with extra oil. You know, even a shepherd in the natural during these times, you know, back in ancient Israel, they would have oil for the purpose of rubbing it around the sheep's eyes and nose area because the little gnats and bugs would just, I mean, torment them. And you guys have been around animals enough to know that, that those bugs can torment animals out in the heat. They're out there, these, these flies buzzing around their eyes and stuff. It's annoying. But the shepherd could rub some oil around their nose and eyes and keep those bugs off of them, see? You... I'm pretty sure by seeing the symbolism here is the pastor's praying for you is keeping the stuff off you that needs to be kept off you. That oil helps keep the enemy's oppression off you. But anyway, that young lady had to keep herself pure, keep her, her lamp lit, keep extra oil while he was gone to prepare a place. Where he was going was not to build a mansion. Jesus didn't say that. He said, in my father's house are mansions. He said, I'm going to prepare a place. It has to do with a bridal chamber. It has to do with a wedding feast. And so here's where the idiom comes in. Nobody knew the day or the hour of this wedding except the bridegroom's father. The father of the bridegroom, 
as the custom was, would go in there and tell his son, you've been building this bridal chamber, you've been getting everything ready, it's time, go get your bride. See, even the bridegroom did not know. It was only his father that knew that time. But it was an idiom of that day when you say no man knows the day nor the hour, they would think wedding in their mind automatically. And so the bridegroom's father would say, go get your bride. And as he would go, the friends of the bridegroom, according to the custom of this time, he would have friends that went with him. And they would be rejoicing, literally blasting a shofar. And they would be singing and rejoicing. And they'd be going through the streets in the middle of the night, the second or third watch of the night. They'd be going through their singing and rejoicing, blasting the shofar. And they would go to this young lady's house and they would, he would snatch her out the window. It was just like in Revelation 4, I saw a door open, said, come up here. It was a quick snatching away. It's the harpazo. It's a thief in the night to snatch away the bride to go to a wedding feast. And so as he took her, they went. There was a prepared place, a hopa, where they would, the wedding ceremony and it would be consummated. But anyway, there would be a celebration for seven days. Isn't it interesting that while the earth is going to be going through the days of Jacob's trouble for seven years, just as the Jewish wedding is seven days, we're going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb for those full seven years. And I'll get to this later. This is kind of out of sync to, of my notes. But here's what I believe is going to happen. Right now, I believe there's been a tremendous move of the Lord to really deeply consecrate a bride and get us ready to meet him in the air. There's about to come a shofar blast and a snatching away, okay? But what's interesting is if you study different symbolism that in the days of Moses when he anointed Aaron and his sons for the priesthood, there was this elaborate ceremony that they had to go through to be consecrated as priests, there was a ram of ordination that was killed, and the blood of the ram literally was applied to their right earlobe, which speaks of your thought life, the right thumb, which speaks of the works of your hands, and the right big toe, which speaks of your daily walk. But they had to be consecrated by the blood. How many knows that we got to be consecrated by the blood of Jesus? They also had to be water-immersed, it was a deep consecration, and Moses would anoint them with oil. Once they were anointed, Moses told them there was specific things that were, there was offerings that were made for them, and they had to stay, listen to this, they had to stay for seven full days at the tabernacle, and they would eat of that holy offering for seven days. They had to stay there, and they could not leave. I believe it's a picture and type of the marriage supper of the Lamb because we're going to be, while the earth is going through all it's going through, we're going to be with the Lord and it's like a final work, a final consecration that we're going to be, it's going to be finished there and then we're going to come back with him to rule and reign on the earth with him for a thousand years. So before the priests began their actual service, they were there for, in the tabernacle for seven days. Just like we're going to be with the Lord seven years, it's going to be a final work of consecration for us to come back. And as I've already taught on this, 
we're going to have our glorified bodies. See, right now in heaven, you've got David, you've got Samuel, you've got all these people we know about in the Bible. You've got Peter and all these people in the early church. They don't have their glorified bodies. At the rapture, when the shofar blasts, the dead in Christ will rise, their bodies will be glorified and given to them. And that's important because once we come back from that marriage supper of the Lamb and we reign with the Lord on the earth, we've got to have our bodies. We've got to have our glorified bodies, you see. So that's the resurrection, the first resurrection. Is all this making sense? But the point of all that is this, that whenever you said no man knows the day or the hour, I'm coming like a thief in the night, everybody in that culture was thinking wedding. Because that was the culture. A thief in the night. No man knows the day or the hour. And they knew that concept. It also spoke of something, uh, Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets. So remember, I'm talking about it from a Hebraic perspective tonight. So the Kohanim or the priesthood, these are the descendants of Aaron. You have to understand that the Kohanim, there was the whole tribe of Levites, uh, the Levim, the whole tribe, they served the sons of Aaron in priesthood duties. They have various duties to serve, okay? But it was actually the sons of Aaron, the descendants of Aaron, that made up the Kohanim, the priesthood. These were the ones that oversaw all the offerings, and they were the ones that could go into the holy place. They could eat of the table of showbread. They burned the incense every evening, every morning, trim the menorah. They were the authority over the administration of the temple or the tabernacle. They also had to be masters of the law of Moses. They had to know it in and out, through and through. They had to. They had to have it memorized in many ways because they also were the final authority in the nation as a government and a judicial system. See, in various towns throughout the nation of Israel, they would have sitting at the gate, because this is where people came and went. This is where commerce took place trade bartering everything went in and out of the gate area there would be elders there and they would decide disputes you know people would argue about things you know, the guy this it's his fault my cow died okay you know i want recompense it's his fault and so they would go to the elders of the city at the gate and present their case and the elders of the city would make a decision but if it ever went beyond them it would go up to Israel's Supreme Court, if you will, which were the priesthood. Do you see what I'm saying? So the priesthood, the sons of Aaron, had to be masters of the word. They had to know the law of Moses. They had to know that when somebody did this illegally, then that this is the punishment. They must restore back this, and at times you had to add a fifth to it. There was all these things they had to know to decide and with that said, they also were the ones that kept up with the various feast cycles, the Moedim. So they had to keep up. Every new moon was the turn of the month, and they had to count to know when Passover falls, when Pentecost falls. They had to keep up with all this because the common people 
were farmers and ranchers, etc., they weren't keeping up with it. So it was the job of the priesthood. And so the Kohanim, the sons of Aaron, when it came time, this was the one feast, the Feast of Trumpets, that nobody knew the exact day nor hour. And let me explain why, because you think, what's well, the first of Tishri? It shouldn't be complicated, but it was. See, everybody knew that Passover would fall on Nisan at the time. That was the month of Aviv. But Nisan 14, that night, they know that. And they know that you count off after first fruits, you count off, you know, to Pentecost. And they knew that the 10th of Tishri was Yom Kippur and then Sukkot in the middle of the month, etc. It was easy because there were such specifics about it. But when you came to this specific feast of trumpets, they said that it starts at the new moon. So here's the problem with that. How many of you guys are familiar with when the moon goes completely black? And then, then at some point, you see that little sliver come. That's the new moon. See, that's the beginning of the Hebrew month. Every time you see that, it's a new Hebrew month right now in this day that we live. But for them to know when the Feast of Trumpets was going to take place, the priesthood had to count off those seven months and they would get to it. And here's what they had to do. Because they did not know the exact moment that that sliver was going to appear. They had to get some watchers together. And they would get these men to go up maybe on high places, hills, and they would be watching and looking at the sky. And remember what Jesus said. When you see all these things start happening in the earth, what did he say? Look up. Your redemption draws nigh. So you have these watchmen assigned by the priest. Who are the watchmen? They're the prayer warriors. And they're staring at the sky looking for that new moon. But they don't know the exact day. They don't know the exact hour. And what if it's overcast? You see? So there, there was something where they had to be watching and really paying attention. But when they saw that sliver come they would quickly report it back to the priesthood and then they would begin to blast the shofar and it was a declaration the Feast of Trumpets had begun. But even once it began there at the tabernacle, it took time for people to hear about it. And so it ended up being that to this day, Yom Teruah is celebrated two days because it took time for the information to get out to everybody. The point of that is this. When you make the statement that you really need to be watching because you don't know the day nor the hour, another thing that will come to mind is the Feast of Trumpets. Now, isn't it interesting that in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Everybody say mystery. Now, here in a moment, I'm going to talk about mysteries in the New Testament. He said, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Look, we're living at such a nearness of the coming of the Lord that it is very possible that there's people that are listening to me that you will not die before you see the rapture. He said, we will not all sleep, meaning die, but we will all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkle of an eye, that is a quick suddenly. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. 
Now, where some confusion has come in is understanding this culture. So I showed you about the idiom of the Jewish wedding, and I showed you about the mindset that would be there. No man knows the day nor the hour. You need to be, when you see these things, you need to be looking at the sky. Look up. You don't know the exact day nor hour. People would be thinking in their mind during this time that that is like the Feast of Trumpets. And see, at the Feast of Trumpets every year, synagogues around the world the blast of the shofar is the key centerpiece so i've been among messianic believers and here's the way it was where i was at so you would have somebody in the front that sings out and there's there's four different sounds there's the tekiah which is one good blast then you have the shivarim which is three distinct blasts da -da, da -da, da -da. and then there's the teruah which sounds like the da 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 the staccato sound. And then, see, this is what was going on where I was at. So there would be a guy up front, and he'd be, because you're supposed to blast the shofar like a hundred times, a hundred sounds. And people would definitely make a point to be there because there was a gathering together to hear the sound of the shofar at the Feast of Trumpets. This is the centerpiece. This is what it's about to hear, the sound of the shofar. What does the shofar represent? It represents the voice of God. It represents a call to repentance. It also has to do with Jubilee when sounded on Yom Kippur. But it's also the sound of war, victory and war. But people would gather, and there would be somebody singing up, to, up front because everything was sung, you know, Takia, Shivarim, and then around the sanctuary was positioned people with various shofarim, and you'd hear that specific sound blast. And then Shivarim, and then da 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 da, you know, and they would keep going around and around and around, and these different sounds of the shofar. And once that individual felt that around a hundred blasts had taken place, he would shout to Kia Hagadol, and this was the last trump. Did everybody just catch that? And at the last trump, every shofar sounded as loud and held it as long as they could to finish it out. It was the last trump. So in this culture, among the Jewish people this time, anytime you said last trump, that's the only thing that would come to their mind. That's the only thing that that would mean to them. Because every year from the time they were little bitty kids, they were dragged by mom and dad into synagogue on Yom Teruah. We got to go hear the shofar. And they would all gather in. And the leader up there would be singing the different, you know, shivarim, takia. And they'd be going around the shofar blast. It would be sounding about 100 times. And at the very end, he would shout, takia hagadot, real loud. And everybody would just blast the shofar. It was a roar. The last trump. So from the time they were really little, their whole lives, every year, at the Feast of Trumpets, they would hear the various shofar blast, and the last, they would hear the last trump. The corporate blast, the loud, hold it out as long as you can. And so you got to understand, when Jesus came, he came to the lost sheep of Israel. His message was to Israel, to the Jewish people. And this, Paul was a rabbi. This was on the mind of Paul when he wrote this. I have no doubt about it. When he said the last trump in his mind 
had to do with the Feast of Trumpets. Let me just give you something to think about. When Jesus came the first time that he came and ministered, he started his ministry around the fall feast time. And he went for three and a half years and he died on Passover. Now here's the interesting thing. Jesus actually, when you say he died at Passover, I don't mean close to it. He died on the day, Passover day. And then he was buried during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I mean, literally, he was in the tomb during Unleavened Bread. And when I say he rose from the dead on first fruits, I don't mean the day before the day after. He rose from the dead on the day of first fruits, on that day. And then you count off 50, and that is the way it's supposed to be done, even though modern Judaism doesn't do it this way, but that's another point. But you count off 50 days from first fruits, and it lands on Pentecost. When was the Holy Spirit poured out? On the day of Pentecost. Not the day before, not a week after, you know. It was on that day. Isn't that interesting? So when Jesus came the first time, it seems like the feast days were very significant in fulfillment of his first coming and the birth of the church. Would you not agree? Because it could have happened in close proximity. You know, well, it was, you know, three days from Passover. It wasn't like that. It was connected to those feasts. And so in the same way, I don't know exactly how this is going to play out, but the whole concept that we don't know the day nor the hour is more of an idiom, but we really don't know the exact moment. We know that, but somehow I believe, and most people do, that there'll be a connection to the fall feast in one way or another. And so when it says the last trump, it's talking about the feast of trumpets. Could it be that somehow the rapture will be connected to the Feast of Trumpets. Even though we don't know the exact moment, and we certainly don't know the exact day or the exact year, but could it be that it's connected somehow to the Feast of Trumpets in the last trump, so to speak? I think that it will be. Could it be that somehow the tribulation time will be connected to the, the Feast Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that somehow that time frame of those seven years somehow maybe it'll start on Yom Kippur and end on it I don't know but somehow it'll be connected to the day of atonement and then finally could it be just as when Jesus started his ministry in the fall feast as far as his ministry goes could it be that when Jesus's feet touch the Mount of Olives and he goes into reign in Jerusalem he will come during the feast of tabernacles I believe it's very possible and so the fall feasts have not been fulfilled, obviously. But that last trump, does that make sense tonight? That's the last trump. And that's where a lot of people have been confused. Well, what does it mean about the last trump? Well, it's talking about this feast time. All right, and just going through some of these notes, I'll give you a few more things to think about. The 70th week of Daniel. So we know that the 69 weeks were up to Jesus' time. And remember, Sir Robert Anderson figured it out to where it literally, he rode in on the donkey on the day that Gabriel predicted, which is amazing. But the 69 weeks had to do with Jesus dying on the cross, and then Israel ended up being dispersed among the nations shortly after that, 40 years later. But anyway, that's the 69 weeks, and the Messiah was cut off. But there's still that 70th week, see? That's going to be the tribulation time. 
And it has to do with the nation of Israel, which I've already explained. Now, let me give you something else that's more from a Hebraic perspective. Y'all getting something out of this tonight from a Hebraic perspective? It's, just, it's different because you have to go back and study the culture of the time. Well, what did, what did that idiom mean? What was that speaking of? What did the weddings look like? What did the feast days look like? Well, here's another thing to consider the harvest cycles. And this is really interesting. So the feast, not only are divine appointments where God said, I will meet with you in a special way. It's a divine appointment. The Moedim is translated literally like divine appointment in English. But it also is connected to the harvest. Now that's really interesting to me. So at Passover, around that time of Passover, the barley harvest starts coming in. It's the early harvest. Then, when you look at 50 days after first fruits, you have the harvest of wheat coming in. And then at the end of the year, when you get to the fall feast, you have the harvest that's associated with like grapes. Did everybody catch that? There's three different harvest cycles. Passover is the early harvest of barley. Pentecost is the harvest of wheat. And then during the fall feast, you have things like grapes and things like that. So here's what's interesting about this. Barley, the way that barley would be gathered is people would go out and cut it down and bring it into what's called a threshing floor. That's why when you read the book of Ruth, you remember how Boaz slept there on the grain because he didn't want people to come and steal his grain in the middle of the night. So he'd sleep on the big pile of grain, you know. But everybody was out there working during the day. They were bringing it into the threshing floor. So you had all this barley. And the way that it was separated was there would be what's called a threshing floor. And you would have a pitchfork called a winnowing fork. And you would take that and you would grab some of the barley with the pitchfork and toss it up in the air. And the wind that would blow through the threshing floor would literally separate all that chaff away. And the grain, the barley grain, would fall into a pile, which would be gathered. This is significant. So the barley is a gentle harvest, if you will. Take the pitchfork, toss it up, the wind separates it. And then you have later, you have the wheat harvest. The wheat was different. The wheat would be cut down and gathered in, but they had this threshing sledge that was very different. And what this did, it was like a sleigh. It was wood and you would, it was just like a sleigh basically. And on the bottom of it, there would be maybe rocks or bone or something that was really hard. And you would have somebody stand on it and an animal would pull it. But they would put the, the wheat underneath so that when you went over it, the weight would break open that husk. And they could get the grain out. Does that make sense? So it had to be like a crushing to get the harvest. So the barley was like a gentle thing. You toss it up. The wind would separate. That was the end of that. But the wheat had to be some kind of weight on it. It had to be broke down and crushed. That husk around it. And then finally, 
the last harvest had to do with the grapes and when you read in the scripture about the grapes it says about Jesus it said that he treads the winepress of God's wrath and so the crushing of the grapes the winepress the crushing the blood of the grape has to do with a lot of bloodshed and a lot of death so let me just show you how this plays out I believe this is symbolic so the first harvest of barley is very much like the rapture how many of you guys would say I don't want to be somebody that's stubborn and hard-headed and God has to beat me over the head I want to be somebody that simply the wind of the Holy Spirit blowing in my life is enough to blow the chaff out of my life amen and just like the winnowing fork when Jesus came John the Baptist said that he said the the winnowing fork is in his hand he's going to thresh the floor remember that it talked about his ministry and it, he said Jesus is the one that baptizes you with the Holy Ghost and with fire and so John the Baptist kind of prophesied about this and anybody in that culture when you said a winnowing fork they knew you were talking about the threshing floor I mean that's the only thing that that was for and so the early barley harvest speaks of the bride the remnant bride in the earth that the Holy Spirit blows upon us and, and we yield to that and he blows out all the chaff out of our lives and just like the barley was tossed up there's a time when we're going to be caught up to meet him in the air it's prophetic it's a gentle harvest it's a harvest that kind of yields to the wind but yet there's another group of people that profess Christianity these people are more prideful they're more rebellious and they're more difficult they harden their hearts they're stiff-necked they don't like to be told what to do they they don't yield to the Holy Spirit and so you understand not everybody is going to make the rapture there's going to be a lot of people a lot that are going to be left here so here's what's going to happen after the rapture you have the tribulation saints these are those that have been hard-headed <laughs> and now the threshing sledge the crushing of the time is upon them the weight of the crushing of the day and the hour that they're going to be in as the wrath of God comes upon the earth and there's going to be such persecution come against Christians for sure. But there's this crushing. And during that time, many of them are going to get right with God. They'll repent. Many of them will be martyred because of it. But their salvation, if you will, that harvest is going to come through great weight and crushing down to break that harvest open and to see it come in. And when you said during this culture in this time, you talked about a threshing, a threshing sledge, you talked about everybody knew exactly what you were talking about because in every town there was people that harvested the wheat, even if they weren't the family that did it, they saw what they did. Everybody knew about this. 
This was common in this culture. And then finally, the third is the grapes. So after the tribulation, the tribulation when Jesus comes, there's going to be so much bloodshed and crushing during that time. The Bible talks about through the tribulation, it's something like three-fourths of the earth's population is going to be killed. And when Jesus comes, all the nations that have gathered up against Israel, he's going to slaughter them with the sword of his mouth. You see, he's treading the winepress of the wrath of the Lord. Is that making sense? But when he comes to Israel, he's going to say to the angels, go gather my elect. And they're going to go out and gather the remaining Jews that are alive. One third will be preserved if there are any remaining Christians that have survived. And they're going to be gathered unto him. That's the very final harvest, like the grape harvest. Is that making sense? I don't know about you, but I don't want to be hard-headed and end up here during the tribulation time and have to be a tribulation saint. I want to just simply yield to the wind of the Holy Spirit and let God do in me whatever he needs to do in me. And when it's time to go, it's time to go. So the rapture, the tribulation saints, and then the very final harvest when all of Israel will be saved, they look on him whom they've pierced and mourned. Those are the three harvest cycles every year in Israel. Does that make sense tonight? Every year, those harvest cycles are repeated, and it is prophetic about the last days. And the people of this time would have known that. They understood the barley harvest. They understood when John said his winnowing fork is in his hand. They understood what he was saying. There's also patterns. In Jeremiah 24, 1 through 8, Israel is obviously the fig tree. Remember that after three years, the fig tree was cut down. And Mark shows us that even when Jesus came for figs, it wasn't in the season for the thing to bear fig uh, fruit. But yet Jesus still expected fruit. He was looking for something spiritual, not natural. Israel is the fig tree. The fig tree that ended up having to be cut down because it was not receiving the ministry of the Lord. But it said again, Mark 13, 28, once again, Israel will blossom and it's a sign of the end times. And I'll just give you a couple more things tonight. So the Bible said, Jesus says over and over to watch and pray. And I can't tell you how important it is that we take that literally. When Jesus is talking about watching and praying, he's literally talking about that we become a people of prayer. I believe this is a day and an hour that we're living where individual Christian people need to learn how to have a personal prayer life and be very disciplined to keep that. And the church needs to become a house of prayer. Jesus said the church should be a house of prayer for all nations anyway. And that seems to me like that's the last thing a lot of places do. But yet Jesus put the emphasis on making it a house of prayer. 
It should be an emphasis. But that's another sermon for another day. But I do believe in regards to the end times that we do need to become a people of prayer. And I believe prayer individually and corporately is what's going to help us be ready to meet the Lord in the air. Because it's as you pray and as the church prays that the wind of the Holy Spirit is moving. And that wind is going to blow the chaff out of us. And that extra oil is going to fill us and we're going to be ready to meet our bridegroom in the air. Now I'm going to give you just a couple more things, two or three more points. Let me read you Matthew 22. This is very interesting because as you read this, I'm not so sure it's talking about heaven or hell in this context, which is quite interesting. But let's read it together. So Matthew 22, verse 1, talking about the wedding feast. So remember, when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, I'm coming back, but no man knows the day nor the hour, but the Father, everybody's thinking wedding. Jesus said this, again, he spoke in parables, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Isn't that interesting? So the father is wanting there to be a wedding feast for the son. And he sent out his slaves, his servants to go out and call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. Who was originally invited to the wedding feast? The nation of Israel. The first invitation. And it says they were unwilling to come. So again, he sent out other slaves saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat livestock, and all are butchered. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way to his farm, to another, to his business. And the rest, look at this, the rest seized the slaves mistreated them and killed them that's speaking of the prophets that were before jesus you remember jesus said this and it was sarcastic actually he said is it even possible for a prophet to die outside of jerusalem but the king the father was enraged at the way that his servants were treated And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their cities on fire. And he said to his slaves, the wedding feast is ready. So anyway, it speaks of the prophets. It speaks of Jesus' ministry. Then it speaks of how they killed him, how they killed the early church, etc. And they didn't receive the servants that were sent to them to invite them to the wedding feast. Okay. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the highways. As many as you find, invite them to the wedding feast. So do you see this? Those before Jesus were prophesying when Jesus came. When his, after he left, he sent his servants out. The wedding feast was there. They were being invited. But each went his own way. They killed Jesus. They killed the prophets. They killed those that were sent to them. And so, enraged, the king says, that's it. Those that were invited are unworthy to come. Then he said, go to the highways and, and byways and invite all those who will come. And that's where the gospel went out to the Gentile nations, right there. It said that he sent his armies and destroyed their city and burned it with fire. 
And we saw that when the nation or Jerusalem was destroyed and then the temple burned. But anyway, <clears throat> this is interesting. Verse 10. The slaves went out to the streets and gathered together all that were both good and evil. The wedding feast was filled. But when the king came in and looked over the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And the king said to him, bind him hand and foot, throw him out into outer darkness in a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, few are chosen. Now, what are the wedding garments? The wedding garments are basically what we call the priestly garments in the Bible. You have the clothing of white, which has to do with salvation and righteousness. You have the blue tunic, which is clothing of power, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You have the bells and pomegranates, the gifts and fruit. And then you have the golden ephod, which is the glory. And so there's these wedding garments, the priestly garments. See, all this comes together. For us to be ready to meet the Lord, there's wedding garments, but also it's a priestly thing. What do priests do? They pray. There are people of prayer. And we're to keep our garments spotless, just like the priesthood. They had to, the high priest was supposed to keep that, those garments um, pure because he had to go in and minister before the Lord. So the question is, they killed the prophets, they killed Jesus, they killed those after Jesus that were sent to them. The king was enraged, he burns their city, destroys the temple. He says, now go gather everybody that'll come. Goes out to the Gentile nations. Here's a question, this is just speculation. I'm not being emphatic here about doctrine or anything like that. But do you, do you think that anybody is going to get into heaven by accident? Like, well, they were supposed to be in hell. Oops. They're here. How did that happen? Um, get him out of here, man. I just, I'm just being honest. I personally don't believe that God is going to make that mistake and that angels make a mistake and accidentally take somebody to the wedding feast that was supposed to be in hell and God's like, what do you, what's wrong with you guys? You know, get him out of here. I don't think it's that. I think that what you're looking at here, where it says that he was not clothed in proper attire, bind him hand and foot and throw him out in outer darkness, I think this reference is to something different. Do you remember how it said about them, those that were the ten, wise, or ten virgins, five were wise, five were foolish? The foolish were left out. And they were knocking, saying, let us, let us in, let us in, let us in. But the door had already been shut. They missed the marriage supper. Does this make sense? I think we're dealing with the same thing here. I think that we're dealing with people that were not allowed into the wedding feast. Which begs the question, is even, this is just a question. I'm not making, like, doctrine about it. I'm just speculating. But, you know, there's a lot of people that's in heaven right now that got there just by the grace of God. They, by the skin of their teeth, they, they were bought by the blood, but they did not live a life that really pleased the Lord in many ways. Is everybody going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, or is it a reward for the overcomers and those that purified their garments? Could there be a separation even there? I don't know. I'm just looking at this. But I do know that the rapture is a reward for those 
that have made themselves ready for it. It is not for everybody. The scripture is clear about that. And I know that you feel the same way I do. I want to be ready when he comes. I want to have the, the garments on, the wedding feast garments on. I want to be clothed in righteousness. I want to be clothed in the power of God, in the glory. I want to be um, what the Bible says, a bride without spot or blemish. I don't want any blemish. I want to be with extra oil in my life. And I want to be in prayer. I want to be looking. And see, the Bible condemns those that did not discern the time. We're supposed to know prophecy and we're supposed to be discerning of the times. We should know that the coming of the Lord is near. How many knows that what I'm saying about the coming of the Lord is near? You see the things in the earth. You know that that's true. You know it. Many of you watching know it. You sense it. Even in you, you know something is different. Even in the days that Jesus came the first time, Daniel had prophesied they were looking. During that time, they knew something was up and they were looking for a Messiah. It's not that they weren't looking. It's just that they didn't like the Messiah they were given. And they rejected him. So here's the last couple things, the mysteries. So another reason why I think people have a hard time with what we call the rapture is because it's a mystery. Peter said about the Apostle Paul, he says some of his teachings are hard to understand. And there are people that pervert his teachings because of that. End time prophecy is not easy to understand. You have to really pray for wisdom. But there are five mysteries in the New Testament. What does it mean when you say mystery here? Well, see, Paul was a rabbi and he studied under Gamal and he was somebody that was very learned in the, what we would call the Old Testament and what the Jews would call the Tanakh. He knew it. He knew it very well. And as he studied it, when Jesus came and died and raised from the dead and appeared to him, you have to understand there's some things that Paul never saw in his studies of the Old Testament that were revealed to him as what he called mysteries. And I'll give you one. The body of Christ, the church, the ecclesia. Paul studied the Torah. He studied the prophets. He never saw a church in it. He saw a nation of Israel. Is this making sense? So to him, when he wrote to Ephesians 3, and he said, behold, this is a mystery. He's saying that this was not revealed until now. This was something that was hidden. But now it's being revealed in the earth. It's a mystery. None of the prophets saw it. Is this making sense? And so also is the indwelling of the believer in Colossians 1. This blew Paul away that all this time... The glory, the Shekinah, the Chavod, the, the weighty glory of God was in the tabernacle and the temple and the Holy of Holies. It was in a geographic location. And he understood the word offering in, in Hebrew, the korban, it meant to draw near. He understood that you had to be pure 
but you could draw near and bring your offering to where God's presence was. He knew it was a, a location. And the fact that now, on the other side of the cross, that each individual person, that the Holy Spirit would live inside of us, was something that blew his mind when it first was revealed to him. It was definitely a mystery. The third thing is the bride of Christ. Paul talked about, remember? He said that the wives submit to the husbands, and the husbands, you're to wash your wife, cleanse your wife with the washing of the water of the word. And he said, behold, I tell a mystery. This is referring to Christ and the bride, this church. See, Paul knew that God the Father had married himself to the nation of Israel, but he never saw in all of his studies that there would be the Messiah come who would marry himself to the church. And that would be a bride. Never saw that. So he said, behold, I tell you a mystery of Christ and his bride. The fourth mystery is the harpazo, the catching away. He said, behold, I tell you a mystery that not all of us will sleep. That some will be changed in the twinkling of an eye to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. It was a mystery. And the last one is the one new man. Paul never saw that there would come a time that there was neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, that everybody would be born again and it would be this one new man of Jew and Gentile together in Christ. He never saw that in all of his studies. He said, now on the other side of the cross, it's a mystery that's been revealed unto us. So one of the reasons why I believe that the rapture is misunderstood is because it's a mystery. It was seen in pictures and type, but it was not openly discussed in the Old Testament up until that point. And then now it's revealed unto us as a mystery through the Apostle Paul. See, there were ancient witnesses to this. Enoch. How many remember Enoch? He lived in the days that Noah was on the earth. He lived in those days that were extremely evil. But as Enoch walked with God, one day he was just caught up and raptured out. It was a picture in type of how there would be this righteous remnant in the earth that would walk with God in very dark, evil, satanic times and would be raptured out of it. Paul saw that in a mystery. He could see the picture in type of it, but it was not something that was seen openly. There's also Noah, which I already talked about, how the wrath of God came down on the earth through rain and the remnant righteous floated above it. And then when the wrath of God subsided, they came back down on the earth again to rain. Elijah lived in a very wicked time, specifically in the days of Jezebel. And see, we're going to see another Jezebel, so to speak, the whore of Babylon. And there's going to be, just like Elijah was taken out of that time, there's going to be a righteous remnant taken out. And Jesus said it would be not only as it was in the days of Noah, but as it was in the days of Lot. Isn't it interesting? Before the wrath of God came on Sodom and Gomorrah and wiped it out, the righteous remnant, Lot and his family, were removed out beforehand. So Paul would have seen this in, in type 
like a shadow. But he didn't see the substance of it until he got this mystery from the Lord. And I know I've talked about delivering us from the wrath to come and we're a house not made by hands. Our flesh is temporary, but God's going to give us a glorified body. I give some scriptures there in the notes. And I already talked about the two comings. There, last week, there are two different descriptions of two comings. One is as a thief in the night to meet him in the air, and the other, all eyes see him as his feet touch the earth, and he reigns from Jerusalem. And Jesus taught us that we might escape these things. Pray that you might escape these things. Another thing as I read over this, Daniel states that the Antichrist will have power over the saints. That's, it's referring to Israel there. But Jesus states the gates of hell will not prevail over the church. So why is that important? Because the rapture happens before and then later you see the nation of Israel and how the Antichrist has power over the, those saints, if you will. There's a, it's a different dispensation. Excuse me, which I'll talk about dispensations another time. But I'm going to close with this. I already talked about some of this last week. Those that watch and pray, those that look for him, etc. Not everybody's going to be ready. But the last three things I want to say is this. The story of Hanukkah. Where this man named Antiochus Epiphanes, he rose to power. He defiled the temple. He put up, you know, a statue of Zeus. He offered a pig on the altar. And this is, this is what he was doing. He was trying to force the nation of Israel to assimilate and become Greek. If this was, you know, like 167 years before Jesus, if Israel had ceased to exist as we know it at that time and simply had become Greek, there would have not been the stage set for the Messiah to come. So this was something Satan was trying to do. He was trying to assimilate Israel. And I believe in the days that we're living in, that the devil is trying to assimilate the church. You see more and more worldliness right now in the church. Just like during the days of Epiphanes, he was trying to force that the Jews would give up any type of going to synagogue. They would give up anything that was, would be considered like Jewish, if you will, under law. They, circumcision, reading Torah, etc. Anything like that. Even the way they dressed, he wanted them to basically become Greek and worship Greek gods. And there were many that were doing that. But there was a righteous remnant that refused to compromise and many of them were slaughtered and massacred in a horrible way. That's why God raised up those Maccabees, which was warrior priests, to go up against that and they pushed back a major military army of that time, the Syrians, um, it was a miraculous victory. God was in it. But the point is this. Satan was trying to assimilate. And I see that right now in these latter days that there's so many that profess to be Christians, but there's no difference between them and the world. They look the same, dress the same, talk the same. Everything about them is like the world. And I don't believe 
that when the Lord is coming as a thief in the night in the rapture, those type of people will definitely not be making the rapture. In Revelation 18, the Bible says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive her plagues, for her sins have piled up as high as the heavens, and God has remembered her iniquities. Talking about the whore of Babylon. So the Bible's saying for God's people, this is a warning for you and I as we read the book of Revelation, that something the devil is trying to do in these latter days is to assimilate God's people to become like the world. How many have seen that? I've seen in my lifetime more worldliness in the church right now than has ever been in my life. There's an assimilation. The second thing I'm seeing the devil do, and what I just mentioned about assimilation is a big deal. It's going to keep people from the rapture, and it may even cost some people their eternal soul. But the second thing I've seen the devil do is the breakdown of the family. In Ephesians 5, through 6, 9, it talks about wives submit to husbands, husbands you know, be the head of the home and lead it in righteousness. Children, honorable parents and all of that. But you see there, men are called to be men. Women are called to be women. You don't see a bunch of role reversals, do you? But here's what Satan's trying to do. In the day and hour we're living, not only assimilate into the world, but he's trying to break down and destroy the family unit. Because, see, here's how it works. In a church, a church is only as strong as each individual family unit is. If you have a whole bunch of families that are totally dysfunctional, they're going to bring their dysfunction into the church, and the church will become a dysfunctional church. You're only going to be as strong as the family units in the church. In the same way with society, a nation is only going to be as strong as the individual family units throughout it. So what's the devil trying to do? He's trying to create every area of breaking down this God-created family unit where men are no longer rising up and leading the family in the ways of God. They're being this little Ahab. Women refuse to submit unto their husbands and everything as unto a Lord, and they want to dominate their husband and rule over them. That's demonic. It's called a Jezebel spirit. Children are rebellious. Did you know the Bible says a sign of the end times is children will disobey and rebel against their parents? We've been seeing that for decades on a very high level. You're seeing even this transgender move, which is horrible. Everybody here would agree it's child abuse. A little kid does not understand. And then they take and they want to do these surgeries to remove their God-given sexual organs so that when, get, when they get older, they can't even marry and have children and reproduce. It's the breakdown of the way God created it to be. For men to be men, women to be women, and there being a family unit. Satan is bringing in everything he can to tear that down and destroy that. Homosexuality, the anti-masculinity, I would have never thought I would have seen that one coming. Now in society, they say this toxic masculinity. 
That is the cry of a Jezebel spirit that hates strong male authority. That's what it is. This toxic masculinity thing that they're saying. Everybody knows that a family needs that male authority. Everybody knows it. In society for decades, they've studied, well, what all these kids that are so messed up out there, most of them did not have a good father in their life. And that's why they went off like they did. All of this is a move to break down the family unit. And through that, to cause society as a whole to be dysfunctional. If you have a nation full of dysfunctional families, then you have a dysfunctional nation. It's just like cancer in a body. You know, you have these different cells that become cancerous and begin to multiply. If a body is completely overtaken with cancerous cells, it dies. Every family unit of a nation is like a little cell that needs to be healthy. If all the cells are healthy, the nation's healthy. If all of them are diseased, then the whole body is diseased. And the last thing is this, being controlled by fear. Three things the devil's trying to do. Number one, he's trying to assimilate the church into the world and make the church become worldly. And so there's no power. The church loses its authority. It loses its power. It loses its influence in the nation because there's no difference in the church than there is in the world. Number two, the breakdown of the family unit to destroy the family. And then number three is to control through fear. If I've ever seen a time that Satan is trying to control society through fear, it's today. And it's only going to get worse. Because ultimately when the Antichrist comes to power with the false prophet, you're gonna, they're going to completely control every person on the earth forcing them to take a mark or they won't be able to buy or sell. It's total control, government control. And today we're seeing plagues like corona leading into what? Medical control. It's a good possibility, especially if President Trump does not get reelected, that there's going to be mandated vaccines and other things it's control to try to control society through fear and people that are given over to fear are going to have a lot of problems which i'm about to show you also you see violence and terrorism what's happening is is the fear that this is producing right now you know we're talking about antifa and all that and it's a terrorist uh domestic terrorism but for years we've known about islamic terrorists and what's happening through terrorism is this. It's being used of the devil to cause society to be unstable. And people are looking for answers, not from God, but they're looking for answers. And eventually, the Antichrist is going to step in and give them what they're looking for. But Satan is using violence and terrorism 
to destabilize nations and cause people to be in fear. They don't know what's coming. They don't even feel like they can go down the street anymore without some type of violence. And there's all this fear and people looking for a solution. And out of fear, the devil is going to bring in the Antichrist eventually. You see, control, threats eventually by the government trying to move us into globalization. Eventually, you're going to see the nations of the earth continually threaten the people that you're going to do this or we're going to do this. We're moving into globalism. We're going to have this one world currency. And those that go against it, you're going to have this problem and this problem. There's going to be threats and there's going to be fear and there's going to be a forced move toward globalization. Same thing, obviously, with the mark of the beast eventually. So there's going to be an opportunity for a lot of fear, a lot of plagues. Corona is not the first or the last plague that we're going to see, guys. This, there's going to be a lot more coming. We've already seen things. That's why it's kind of weird that, what was it, 10 years ago, we had the swine flu and none of it was blown up like this. Yet there was a pretty good death toll. There's something different. There's a spirit behind this that makes it different. There's something about this that's connected to end time prophecy. You see. But anyway, there's gonna, this isn't the last plague. There's going to be natural disasters. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to continue to be lawlessness. There's going to be a lot of opportunity to live in fear. This is why it's so important that we overcome fear. How do we overcome fear? by building up our faith in God. That God, as we pray and spend time with Him, we bring our lives under the blood, we speak out loud the Word of God over our lives, and we do it daily, we're going to build up our faith that God will supernaturally protect us. That God will supernaturally keep us healthy. Or He will heal us if we need it. He will supernaturally deliver us from evil. Y'all hear what I'm saying? We're living in times where we're going to have to build up our faith and live by faith. Otherwise, if you fall into fear, you're going to be absolutely no different than the world and you're going to handle everything exactly like the world. And here's what's concerning. Revelation 21.5, He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said this. Now look at what I'm saying. Write these words. Are, who are, Sorry, write for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. I will be his God and he will be my son. But look at this. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, etc. But the first thing it says is the cowardly. Did y'all ever read that? And think about it. The first warning is against the fearful. But the cowardly, and that word there in the Greek is fearful and dread, and it says the unbelieving, and it says the abominable. And I looked up abominable, and it means to be defiled. That's why I tell people, you better be really careful about the things you're letting in your life that defile you. God isn't playing around with this stuff. He says the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable. It's like in the Greek, it's defiled or like a spiritual stench because of defilement. The murderers, the sexually immoral, and that's the Greek word there 
immoral for its pornos where we get the word pornography how many people are messing around with pornography jesus look i say it in love but jesus said that if you look with lust you commit adultery in your heart how many people are living day in and day out in adultery they're not going to be ready for the coming of the lord you better do whatever you need to do to get free from that it's defiling you also the sorcerers that's obviously a reference to witchcraft and the occult, isn't it? But it also is a Greek word for drugs. No other time in our history that I can think of, because I've studied history, I've studied, you know, the last 2,000 years, but even before that, has there been the opportunity like it is today because of modern technology for the widespread use and distribution of drugs? Hello? In the Bible, drugs is the word sorcery. And also idolaters and liars. See, God takes lying seriously. It says their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now I was reading over that. I was thinking the cowardly, the unbelieving, those that are defiled, the murderers, those that are living in sexual sin, including pornography, the sorcerers, the drug users, the idolaters and liars. Man, it was like, people need to really take this seriously and repent. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. There's a fear that people have of dying and you know the thing is the bible says right here in second corinthians 5 8 we are confident yes well pleased rather to be absent from the bodies to be present with the lord if we really believe the bible to be absent from your body is to be present with the lord and it says to live as christ to die as gain we shouldn't be afraid of death if we're truly christians but there's a fear and a fear of death that has crept over this nation and you know it and you see it all the time. And people are in total fear, even people that call themselves Christians in total fear. And reading these scriptures concerns me for them because I know end time prophecy and I know the devil's going to use fear to control them in a lot of ways in the days to come. So Satan's trying to assimilate. He's trying to break down the family. And he's trying to control us through fear. You can see it in our culture. And I'll tell you something else. In America's culture, there's a strong spirit of lawlessness that's trying to separate us from our Judeo-Christian heritage. That is what all of this is about as they're tearing down statues. And they're trying to rewrite history. They, these people behind it know what they're doing. They're trying to separate America from our roots. And that, what is our roots? Our Judeo-Christian heritage. And they're trying to replace them with something else. You're seeing this end time events played out right before our eyes. What the prophets saw were living it in this day. The coming of the Lord is near. And here's what's going to happen. Those that know their God and are going to walk with him, I believe we're going to do great exploits. Daniel said that. We're going to see great end-time revival in the days to come. 
We're going to see a harvest come in. God's going to purify us as a bride. He's coming to get us. Okay? But before we go, we're to occupy until we're come. And we're to see the greatest uh, revival and the greatest uh, harvest of souls and a bride made ready for his coming. So, Lord, I thank you as we close this out. We do not want to be a people that are going to assimilate with this world. People should be looking at us and seeing that we are radically different than the world around us. There should be nothing about us that's worldly. And Lord, we ask your forgiveness if we've allowed it. Change us. Number two, Lord, we need to have strong families. We need men to rise up and lead families. We need wives to be submissive. We need children to obey their parents. But we need strong family units in these last days in the church, Lord. Give us strong families. Let there be a strong move to strengthen families. And finally, Lord, we pray we don't want to be fearful, but we want to be a people of great faith. That we believe God to supply our needs, to protect us, to defend us, to keep us from the path of the violent, to deliver us from evil, to supernaturally provide for us, because the economy is going to be up and down and shaking. But Lord, the, the world's economy is not our source. You are our source. And Lord, we thank you. Help us have great faith in the promises of God that we're going to have to live by faith. We're going to have to walk in faith. We're going to have to speak faith. We're going to have to speak the word and believe God. And Lord, that you would provide for and take care of your people in these latter days. Lord, we thank you for it and we bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and shut down recordings tonight. This has been different with the Hebrew perspective, isn't it? Listen, if you have any questions, make sure and come to me and ask me questions. If you have any questions, you can just play that iPod. It should be ready. But I want to make sure everybody's comfortable with end time prophecy. By the time we get